other large items of vehicles just being rolled over in the water like you know the toys. So um, to be in, uh, to be winched down to those locations in water like that is uh, you know enormously courageous. They, they did a terrific job on the day. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to the Rotary Wing Show, and we're probably going to have a long one tonight, so we're going to jump straight into it. On the line, I've got Mark Turner, Brett Knowles, and Nathan Coyle. So, gents, welcome very much to the, to the call today. Yeah, Thanks for having me, Mick. I'm a big, uh, big fan of your show, so it's great to be on board. Brennan, you'll get to know the uh, the different voices as we go through, but what I'll do quickly is just set the scene, and then we'll jump in and I'll introduce you a little bit more to each of, uh, each of the guys. So what we're talking about today is the 2011 uh, flooding that happened in, in Brisbane here in Queensland. And I'll just read straight from a, a case study. On the 9th and 10th of January 2011, heavy rainfall caused flash flooding to occur across parts of Queensland, resulting in widespread damage to property and 35 fatalities. Grantham, Lockyer Valley and Toowoomba were severely impacted. Due to landslides caused by flooding and water blocking the Warrego Highway, the Lockyer Valley became isolated Police and emergency services were no longer able to access the area. Excessive fog and rain prevented helicopters flying overhead during the emergency. Emergency services were overwhelmed during the disaster. Triple zero operators advised people to stay indoors to avoid being swept away. On a typical Monday, the triple zero line in Toowoomba receives about 60 calls. And on this day, 883 such calls were received. And I thought I'd just double, you know, pull out there that line saying that uh, excessive fog and rain prevented helicopters flying overhead during the emergency because obviously today we're going to be talking all about you guys flying over the top of uh, the conditions there. So let's, uh, Mark, I'll throw it to you first. If you can just quickly give a, a quick background of your aviation experience and your career up until the 2011 floods. Yeah, sure. So basically, Nick, yeah, I started as a rescue crew officer back with Lismore uh, Westpac Service back in 2005 under Roger Fry, who was the former crew chief there. And then uh, I did a bit over three and a half years there and then opportunity come to uh, get a start up with EMQ up in Cairns. So I had a, a close to two years there on the L412 and the 139 when they got introduced into Cairns, and then uh, from then on, I think it was around 2009, 2010, I ended up uh, transferring back to Brisbane base at Afterfield uh, with EMQ on the, the 139 till I finished up last year and hung the fins up. And what would, what's the general duties of a, a rescue officer? A rescue crewman, so they, yeah, their main role is to actually perform it down the way, rescue role, both land and water. So, yeah, basically... I'm up in the Cairns area, I was there a lot of winching involved out on the reef and the pontoons and that type of thing. And then uh, winch jobs up into the, you know, to the hinterland and the mountains around Cairns. But yeah, basically the RCA performs down a wire roll and assisting the medical team uh, on site as well and on scene. So, and doing the, you know, facility transfers as well. We sort of assist the medical teams as we go into, you know, hospitals and the like 
and transferring patients back to the, the city hospitals as well. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Mark. And we'll talk to you again shortly. Brett, I'll throw you in uh, now if you want to give your uh, quick rundown. Sure, Mick. Yeah, yeah. like um, Mark, I work for uh, for Emergency Management Queensland Helicopter Rescue at Archerfield uh, as the senior crew officer there. So my uh, duties and responsibilities was to really just coordinate uh, the overall uh, base operations for the reset crew, that is air crewmen, rescue crewmen, and uh, work with paramedics and doctors there that are co-located at the base. And my role there was just effectively to, uh, uh, you know, coordinate and manage rostering, training, and uh, and uh, support the senior pilot in, in his absence and also fly the line as a, um, an air crew officer on the uh, AW139. And I've been at, uh, I think I've been at Archerfield about about 12 months at that stage that, uh, that Grantham had occurred. Prior to that, I'd been with Australian helicopters up in the Torres Strait as the uh, chief surveillance crewman uh, based in Port Island there. And I was involved again, very similar role, managing rear cabin crew for both the Border Protection Command contract up there and also the uh, Queensland Health contract. So we had um, uh, two Bell 412s up there and uh, an AS350 squirrel for uh, those uh, two contracts. So it was a relatively busy base. It was touring and it was quite, uh, uh, you know, quite a good uh, location to work in. I thoroughly enjoyed the Torres Straits. And uh, prior to that, I was with, uh, I was with Careflight Crew and working uh, down here on the Gold Coast. I've been with them for about uh, four or five years, mainly working in um, uh, safety training uh, in uh, Hewitt Sea Survival and EBS, emergency breathing systems, and also uh, doing some flying uh, for them as well. And prior to that, um, I was, I'd left the military, so I'd left the Australian Army uh, Aviation Corps in 2001 as a Sergeant uh, Equipment Loadmaster, or sorry, Staff Sergeant Equipment Loadmaster, and I'd Finished up my time there with the, the 5th Aviation Regiment in Townsville. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about myself and, and my background. No problems. And, Nath, we obviously did a uh, pilot's course together, so we've uh, had a, a lot to, to run in along the way. But, uh, yeah, do, <laughs> yeah. You to, do you want to give uh, your background? Yeah, so uh, almost 20 years in the Army. I'm currently working with the Crash Response Helicopter at the Aviation Centre in Oki. Started up my career doing a Bachelor of Science at UQ. But after graduation, I really couldn't see myself sitting at a computer screen for a living. So I joined the Army and um, attended the Royal Military College and graduated into Aviation Corps. I began my aviation life as an Iroquois driver before transiting uh, over to my current type, the Black Hawk. Uh, I spent a few years in B-Squadron Aviation in Townsville, uh, working as a line pilot, troop commander, and then on to um, deep level maintenance test pilot with uh, BAE. I finally moved over to headquarters and did some time in the regiment as um, an EW officer. So I spent some time flying in other countries, such as Timor, Fiji and Papua New Guinea, the usual suspects, and uh, flown at home in the humanitarian operations with cyclones and floods. Um, so after B Squadron, I was posted down to Oki uh, in op support troop. I was selected for flying truck course, where I taught for a while in the Black Hawk, um, then posted to the Black Hawk simulator to be the reference pilot and sim manager. Uh, and then that grew into managing eight devices, which included ARH and MRH. I then uh, picked up a job, which I currently have, working uh, as a civilian, still on Blackhawks, but keeping my hat in the Army Reserve, doing Blackhawk simulation management and reference pilot. No worries. So we've probably got 60 years of uh, aviation experience plus here on the on the phone call. <laughs> so it's great. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. What I'll, I'll do now is I'll basically just give a, a quick geographic 
you know, background in terms of the operating area. If you guys want to, you can chip in and, and sort of fill in that as well. But uh, again, if you're listening from overseas, uh, what the area we're talking about here is Brisbane, it's the capital city of uh, Queensland in Australia, so about the third largest city in Australia. And if you took Australia and draw a line across the middle from west to east, then Brisbane is pretty much on the eastern seaboard, about halfway up Australia. Brisbane itself borders pretty much on the coast. It's probably you know about 100, 200 feet across uh, in terms of elevation across Brisbane. And the general aviation airfield here is Archerfield, which is about 100 feet, uh, again, uh, elevation. And that's where the uh, the 139s, the Emergency Queensland helicopters are based. Going west from there, we have Ambly, this is the uh, Air Force Base. Again, it's about 100 feet elevation. And then the whole Lockyer Valley ranges between about 200 and 500 feet. Then there's a basically jump up a small range uh, for people overseas. I kind of feel embarrassed talking about the the, uh, the heights of, of mountains here in Australia. But uh, this range is uh, for the Toowoomba range about 2,300 feet, if we call it that. And I guess coming from the Lockyer Valley, it's a fairly sharp uh, climb up to the uh, top there. And Toowoomba is a bit of a, a plateau. And then down on the other side uh, in the I guess you'd call the, the dying downs on that side is Oki, is the army base out that way, about 1,300 feet elevation. Gives you just a, a general from uh, east to west idea of, of the operating area. But we'll jump in. Uh, Mark, we'll, we'll start off with you uh, and obviously the events here on, on the day. Uh, so with Rescue 500, uh, if you can just tell us, you know, how, how did you first get the, the call out to, uh, to Grantham and uh, what was the first that you knew about the, the flooding? Yeah, sure. Um... Just remembering the January 10th there, that typical day, it was uh, quite wet. But, yeah, we got a two-patient job up to Kilcoy in the morning. Yeah, it's pretty heavy showers in the area, so we had to dodge a bit of weather. We ended up landing on the road up there and just uh, meeting QAS and loading two patients up. And then um, as we are coming back to Brisbane, the phone call started pouring in about Toowoomba um, and requesting us to get up to Toowoomba. And then uh, Captain Mark Kempton, once we got back to the hospital in Brisbane and we dropped the two patients off, he had a quick look at the weather and then I think he declined the task just due to weather. And the cloud on the range up at Toowoomba, at that stage we headed back to Archerfield and did the reconfigure and refilled. And then uh, I think it was approximately after 1600, we got the initial call to go to Grantham. So, yeah, we just basically gutted the machine as light as we could and just put extra fuel on board and set it up for SAR. And then off we went up the valley to Grantham. What was the description um, that you had? Like w- when you were heading out there, what did you think you were going to be going out to see? Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of conflicting information. But initially, it was just a, a SAR for um, a real fire service captain and his wife and two kids that were in a stuck in the floodwaters. So I think the police who tasked us initially they, they were giving us like the street addresses of these, you know to go and find these people and once we got out ahead of Grantham we're just like there's no streets here <laughs> so it was yeah, extremely difficult to find out exactly where to go but yeah initially it was just for that one call for the the, the missing people for the SAR operation. And the weather on the way out so Archfield heading west out towards the Lockyer Valley I've uh, seen a video there again of, of Mark the, the pilot sort of talking about you know weaving backwards and forwards to try and get out there can you talk about the, the weather? Yeah it's definitely yeah a lot of shower activity and some um, low-lying clouds, so basically had to scud run a couple of hundred feet up the valley. Yeah, once we sort of got on scene, it's sort of, you know, looking up towards Toowoomba and that type of thing. It was definitely, yeah, a lot more heavy showers in the area, but 
I think for the first hour, hour and a half, then it was just, yeah, just passing showers, but the visibility wasn't too bad at that stage. But then when um, Brett and Peter Rowe and the guys in 510 come in later on, I think the weather started to deteriorate more so. And how much of the town was underwater when you guys got there? Was it was the river still flowing and, and bursting its banks or had had gone through the town? Uh, pretty much gone through the town. It basically looked like an inland sea is the best description. As I said, the Campo and Paso, the, the winch operator, it just looked like a scene out of a movie as we're coming into Grantham. But, yeah, you could see just people everywhere on the rooftops of houses, vehicles getting washed away. Saw a house got washed off its stumps. A uh, little fixed-winged aeroplane was, um, yeah, just bobbing just like a toy in a bath, sort of going down with the flow of the water. But, yeah, that basically passed through the town by the time we got overhead. How did it go from there? So you obviously got overhead. How did you sort of triage or what were your first couple of pickups? Well, basically, yeah, we just did a recce just around the town. And um, what we did, we found that there was a farmhouse just sort of close to the railway line. And we decided to make that a bit of a staging area where we could ferry the people back to. So what we did, we landed on and quickly kicked uh, Glen Ryan, the doctor, out and all the medical equipment. And then we set up a makeshift sort of yeah, triage centre there. And then we, we got airborne again. We left the, the paramedic on board and then just started, yeah, started sail operation, just working our way from the western side of town, just trying to, yeah, basically see as we're going along. But everywhere we looked on rooftops, there was people on roofs, people pointing to the trees and that type of thing. So we just, yeah, basically tried to prioritise the best we could, going for the the children and the women first, and then the you know the men as well. After that, now I've got the figures here in front of me. I think it, uh, I think it was twenty eight uh, winches or twenty eight people you guys winched up. What was the most number of winches you, you've ever done in a day before? Because my winching experience, you know, I've done heaps and heaps with the Iroquois at Blackhawk training, but to this day, I've never ever <clears throat> actually winched anyone up in anger. It's always been either you know, a dummy hoist or someone who's practicing a comm surf or something like that. So to this day, I've never actually had to use it. But up until this day, like what was the most winches you've ever done in a day? Um, probably, yeah, general. Brett, Brett would sort of maybe agree with this. But, yeah, generally most winch tasks you might be do probably two or three people max, depending on, you know, the type of job. But, yeah, it was rare for me prior to this to actually have done anything more than say one one or two winches per operational winch so yeah to do the 28 um on that day it was yeah it was a bit of a feat and we got a kitten as well so, it's <laughs> so well, tell tell us about that one obviously there's a couple of a couple <laughs> of, a bit of a story <laughs> behind the kitten yeah tell us the kitten one. Oh, this yeah this we're pulling um pulling a woman off the roof of the house and um probably got about two feet off the deck. Uh, I was sort of obviously looking up, doing some hand signals to the air crew in Paso, and this kitten's just launched straight up, jumped up and landed on the the, the lady who we were hoisting up and started crawling up her and basically just sitting on top of her shoulder. And uh, but we got to the door and Paso sort of saying no pets and, and sort of said you know I couldn't really let that one go. So <laughs> yeah, the lucky kitten. So yeah. It's a bit of a funny tale, that one. <laughs> no worries. And there's there's one particular one where you actually get uh, out of sight of the helicopter. So I, I think – so I'll give you the quick brief on what I've read and you can obviously fill us in on the details, but you'd come to a rooftop yep. and the people were pointing to a tree and saying, no, go go for the tree. And there's people holding onto a tree in, in the actual floodwaters that you had to go down for. 
Yeah, we, we were coming into uh, yeah just another setup into the Winter Family off the roof, and they were pointing frantically to this little cluster of trees just near one of the houses. Anyway, we couldn't actually see anyone until we sort of got a bit overhead and the trees parted, and we saw like an elderly couple, Ken and Fran aunt, they'd been hanging on there for over two and a half hours. So we just backed up, and then uh, Parcel and I had a quick little powwow about the best way to attack it. Basically, he inserted me sort of upflow from the trees, and I just said I'd make my way to the trees and just to give me like a minute or two to try and get the strop on and then uh, winch out. Now, um, it was a really difficult, probably one of the most difficult winches I've done because uh, as soon as I got to the trees and I grabbed the elderly woman, I was basically just um, flotation for her. So she was um, under and uh, past I couldn't see what was going on, obviously, from the aircraft because it was just looking straight through the sort of tree canopy. But I just sort of yeah, managed trying to get and strop on uh, her, keep myself afloat, and then just, um, yeah, trying to manage the cable as well. So didn't get snagged on the trees. Now, we didn't have comms with the aircraft at that stage, so, yeah, it felt like an eternity. And I was waiting for Darren to hoist us up, and then, um, yeah, I think he just sort of started fishing us out, basically, and we got pulled straight through the canopy. So, yeah, it's probably one of the most difficult sort of hoists I've done in the swift water. I mean, you are so underplaying this because uh, in, in the aircraft, apparently they were having a conversation basically the fact, to the effect that they, they think they'd lost you and were considering cutting the wire. Yeah, I heard that afterwards. And uh, it's, yeah, I guess down in the water, that's the last thing I was sort of thinking of. But at one stage, I was getting pushed under the water by a friend just because just I was a, a, a you know point of buoyancy for her. And at one stage, when I was waiting to get hoisted out, I was pretty close to popping the cake well and just sort of managing, you know, thinking of what would happen then or where we would have ended up. So, you know, I had a life jacket and, and fins on the side of my harness, so, you know, fair chance we would have been okay. But, um, yeah, I'd, it was uh, getting a bit close there. And then Darren fished us out, which was yeah, it's really good. <laughs> How was, again, we'll talk about uh, the other two two cabs doing it as well but but we drop we were pulling people up and then dropping them off back where the, the dry land where the doctor was or were you pulling up multiple people you know one after the other and sort of filling up the cabin and then moving across yeah we, we decided uh once we just started flying the, the, the circuit into basically start the operations that we left the qis paramedic on board just to manage the cabin while darren was fulfilling the hoisting and then, yeah, we, we basically briefed not to use the actual hypo strop, just to use, just to do the quick strop recovery. So just so, you know, time was, was the essence and we wanted to save a bit of time. So, yeah, we're basically just filling up the, the machine as much as we could. And then um, uh, Bugsy, the paramedic, did a really good job of managing the back of the cabin and passed obviously operating the hoist and, and me just bringing the, the people up. So, yeah, we basically just would fill the machine and go land on. I'd, I'd help and Dan would help uh, unload the, the patients off to Glen and the, the people in the farmhouse, and then we'd off, the, off we go again and do it all again. Was there anyone else in the air at that stage, or you you were the only one in that in that area? I believe the only other aircraft in the area was I think it was Channel Seven. They were filming us. Yeah, but I, I do believe there was another aircraft. Uh, I think it was the United Aero BK, the Red BK. I think they were doing some hoisting as well. I don't think they were actually in Grant, and they might have been just just up the way, up the valley a bit more. But, um, yeah, we weren't aware of anyone else in the, in the area. You must have been absolutely wrecked <laughs> going up and down the wire that, that many times and helping people in and out. It must have been, you know, just physically exhausting. Yeah, it was, mate. It is, I remember once we got back to, to the hangar at Archfield and 
Pass and I basically just collapsed on the, on the hangar floor and just didn't say a word. But, um, you know, you sort of running on a bit of adrenaline and, and as well. So it's just, um, yeah, you had an extra kick to, to get things done. And I, the one thing that really sticks with me, I, just towards the end when we were getting really low on fuel, and um, I, know, I think Kempo got in touch with the second machine rescue fire team, which was at Archerfield, because uh, I was getting ready to do the, the initial night vision goggle training for the, the Brisbane base now. I think Kempo got on the phone and got those guys going, which was really good, like Gret and Peter Rowe and, and the two rescue crewmen. So I remember vividly those guys coming through out of the gloop because the weather started deteriorating as the afternoon went on. I remember seeing the position lights coming through the gloop and it was such a good feeling. Like the cavalry arrived and we were basically spent by then and tapped out to those guys and they continued on and did a fantastic job. I think getting another 15 people, Brett, I think. I think so, mate. Yeah, yeah. About that, uh, I think about that number. It took us a while to uh, to get to you guys and find you. I think, um, but then once we we, we found you and uh, obviously uh, met up with you guys, got a bit of a very quick handover, and you know, away we went from there. So uh, yeah, mate, uh, fantastic effort by these guys. Um, I think you, you know, the only thing I can add to Mark's uh, story there is just that you know he was dealing with all of this in what I saw. Um, which was, you know, flowing water like I'd, you know, tidal stream water like I'd never seen before, you know, beyond any fast rapids or anything, and water running through the township of Grantham that was probably two or three kilometres wide. And, uh, and you know, by this stage, I can't imagine how deep it would have been. So, uh, you know, um, you know, to see, you know, houses being dislodged, like Mark was saying, and other large items of vehicles just being rolled over in the water like, you know, the toys. So... Um, to be in, uh, to be winched down to those locations in water like that is uh, you know enormously courageous. They, they did a terrific job on the day because it would have been you know branches and you name it, everything floating through the water as well. So it had been collected by any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. There's a lot of swift water within the swift water environment. And one thing that came out of all the debriefing afterwards was that. We, all the RCOs within the company, went and uh, did a swift water rescue technician course with Queensland Fire and Rescue. So that was a really good course. We went up to Tully and uh, did a lot of yeah, scenario-based stuff, obviously not with the aircraft, but more you know, based around and working in swift water environment. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of the guys got a lot of good stuff out of that. Now, getting back home wasn't super easy either because obviously you guys were starting to get a bit low on fuel now. You've been out there for two hours. There's a one story there about Mark was trying to call ahead to to get like an army refueling truck out to, to meet you guys. Yeah, I, I think that was the following day. Okay, I do recall. Um, yeah, just to correct you on that one, we we basically had to back to Archfield and we were below reserve limits just to get back to Archfield. So, but yeah, I think that was the following day when they actually were grounded on the highway out near Amberley and. Uh, um, yeah, they tried to get some fuel from um, from Amberley, and they, yes, for whatever reason, they, they they wouldn't release the fuel truck from Amberley. So I recall the, our engineers had to come out with a work here with drums drum stock on the back of the the work here, and we had to hand pump fueling. And I know, especially Nathan, you'll you'll bring this up later on, and Brett, you might have touched on it as well. But uh, the mobile phone—it sounds like everyone was basically using, you know, iPhones to to navigate and get around because the, you know, obviously the machines didn't have like a moving map display, and because all the the streets were underwater, uh, you guys were relying on on basically an iPhone in the cockpit to get, to get around. That's right. Google Maps became a friend real quick. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it's interesting getting it road directions, though. Yeah. In, in yeah. Well, I might do because, again, you guys haven't had much chance to chat to each other. So just so we don't jump over the top of each other, throw it to you, Brett. Did you have any, any other questions for, for Mark or anything you want to try and pull out from that first sort of response uh, there? No, look, I, 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 mean, I was thinking about it today and, and the events, uh, pretty much as Mark has described it, you know, we were really um, called out around to the second aircraft around about, I think, about 5 o'clock and it was just coincided with the 5 o'clock news. And, uh, you know, visions of, uh, you know, torrents running through the city of Toowoomba and down the, uh, the Warrigal Highway down the range there. And then, uh, you know, pretty much, you know, pandemonium of let's get as many, you know, crews out there as we can. And, and we were just fortunate to have extra guys there. As Mark was saying, we were planning a training uh, weekend, so we had extra staff. We had the second aircraft there, which had come down from Cairns um, and it, it had been in Rocky the week before. So they'd brought it down, done some servicing on it, and it was going to the cover for Rescue 500 whilst it conducted, you know, the, uh, the line uh, staff training. So, yeah, yeah we're very fortunate. Um, and uh, we just headed off straight out with the two. I had two additional rescue swimmers uh, on, or re- rescue crewmen on board. And the first thing we did was link up with 500, which I think was at that farmhouse. I'm glad you mentioned it, Mark, because I couldn't remember where it was. But uh, we managed to, to find 500, land, get a very, very brief handover and, just grabbed some of their roll equipment and away we went. And, uh, I, you know, I do recall asking, uh, I think it was Paso, you know, w- what do you think? Where do you think we should start? And he said, just do the best you can. And uh, it really was the, the kind of thing there was that to try and, uh, you know, do as much as you can in the time you had. And, uh, you know, without without kind of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, putting yourself at, at, at too much, in too much harm's way. But when you looked at the devastation down there, you just... Uh, you know, it was just enormous. And I'm, I've never come across anything like that, you know, in terms of uh, disaster-type relief work uh, to that scale. So it was it was monumental. And we just started at one end of the town. And, you know, like Mark said, people that were secure on rooftops were okay. You, uh, you know, you just marked where they were, but you're looking for people in the water or people in, in, great, you know, in great danger. So they were the ones that we went for. And what I also, you know, had the advantage of, in the second aircraft was to be able to put, you know, one guy on the roof of the house, one of the rescue crewmen, winch him down there and say, cohort and get those people ready and I'll come back for you in a couple of minutes. So, you know, I mean, we, we were seeing, you know, people, uh, you know, obviously hammering out, you know, the, uh, the galvanised roof lines of their houses as they tried to make their way up into the roof to get away from the water. So, oh, so they were you know, inside, basically it, climbing up in, the, in their roof and, and basically opening the roof That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, they had pretty much, you know, um, climbed up through into the cavities of the roof and then one way or another banged out the, uh, you know, the uh, the roof line in order to get, you know, the family. And as Mark will attest we're talking about families with, you know, grandparents, children, you know, um, all trying to get up there and, so you know, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a hell of a hell of a job, and quite you know, quite confronting when you first came there. But uh, pretty much focused and got onto the job, and that was you know, as how we ran it on the day, and we just kept working uh, on and off until it kept going at it until you know, Peter obviously started to to, to get a little concerned for fuel, and I would ask Peter Rowe, 
can you just give me another five minutes? I've got another two down here or another one person here. And he, you know, he'd quietly just give me that extra time. And we both started, uh, by this is nightfall, we were doing it in the dark, you know, winching in the dark. And uh, I said, Pete, is there any chance we can just go for Amberley? That way we can we can get some more people on board. And, uh, you know, he obliged and he obliged and he obliged until his you know, voice started to change and he said, Brett, we've got to go. And I said, okay. And uh, I think the last person we brought up into the aircraft was a young girl and she, or a young lady, and she had been hanging on to a, uh, she'd been swept out of the house, was holding on to a pile of um, uh, like railway sleepers. And um, we managed to bring her, you know, get her out of the water into the aircraft. And uh, we managed to take the first lot of people, I think, to that, that, that farmhouse that Mark mentioned before. And then the second group of people we took with us to, to, to Amberley, they were met by ambulance there at, at Amberley Air Force Base and we pretty much landed with uh, you know, low fuel lights on and, and taxied in. And, um, uh, yeah, and uh, sadly that, that lady had lost a child. She was, she, um, she was holding on to a small child in, in, the, in, the, in the raging you know, torrent of water and uh, when she hit that pile of sleepers, she lost control of the child and the child was swept away. Oh, and she was actually, you know, later on she was happy. You know, she was in midterm pregnancy, and uh, we found out later on that she also had a miscarriage, um, has you know, having been exposed to that whole event. So, I guess for me that that uh, certainly uh, you know is a clear reminder of what I experienced that that day. Um, that that uh, that young girl just in you know complete shock um, as to what had happened. And of course, everyone uh, that we brought up was in similar sort of stages, yeah, stages of, you know, shock and, and uh, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty unbelievable. And the last thing I remember, um, I'm glad Mark brought it up, was that little BK117. We, we taxied or took off out of the township and I didn't even know that BK was there, but we flew over the top of it and it was, you know, these guys were on, you know, just using their landing lights and they, it looked to me as if they were trying to winch people out of a like a dislodged Queenslander that had been you know pushed down the, the the road by the rapids, and here they were in the dark, just complete blackness, and they were they were going for it. And I you know I just uh, thought that was just mighty courageous. You know, it was the last we saw of Brentwood, and we headed back to Amberley. Yeah, well, Eve's question there, but yeah, I haven't tracked down that that red uh, BK yet. But uh, also, Ooh. I think that first day and the next day there was a McDermott. So I don't know if it was a you know two twelve or one of their their four twelves or what machine they had, but they didn't have any hoist. It mm-hmm. sounds like they did. They took you know, twelve people off the roofs, you know, off you know basically hover and planing. So coming down and putting a skid on the roof mm-hmm. to, to pull people in. Um, mm. <laughs> trying mm. to track those guys down. But what about the, the weather though? Because again, I just tried to tease out a mark, but but Brett, the, the I've got some figures here of the rainfall for the couple of days uh, off the Bureau of Met site there tonight, and uh, there's a couple here. So Peachester on, on the tenth had three meters of rain on the on the tenth of, of January. Uh, Peachester's obviously mm. just a little bit further north. Uh, Crow's Nest here mm. one and a half meters. Lowood two meters of rain on on the day. Uh, so there's basically mm. we're talking about, you know, between one and a half to three meters of, of rainfall on a, on a single day mm. uh, for the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth, and again mm. it'd been raining up until that point. But I mean, coming out there at five o'clock in the afternoon, it must have been, you know, with that much cloud and rain coming over, it must have been pretty bleak and dark even at that point. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I do recall us transiting out there, literally low level. 
And I think we went around the southern side, around towards, I think it was Mount Walker, which is on the, you know, towards the southeastern side of Amberley, I think, to try and uh, stay out of the weather. But the whole time we're in, you know, in heavy rain, you know, and, it, you know, I looked at my logbook today that, you know, it was nearly three hours of flying, but uh, I think it must have taken us nearly an hour to get out there or 45 minutes to an hour to just get out there, get ourselves out there and, and five, uh, find 500. And uh, so, you know, we were pretty much, yeah, you know, the old scud running, mate, just trying to keep ourselves, you know, out of the weather and, uh, and above the safe height of, of the terrain. And, you know, working in those areas, you get, you know, some good local knowledge. So, but it was a going, you know, constant map reading and, and updating as to what we're expecting to see up, you know, ahead of us to to make sure we were, you know, we were aware of the terrain and, you know, what hazards, towers, you know, wires and all those sorts of things may uh, present to us, you know, while we tried to push on. But um, it was pretty dark. It was pretty dark anyway, just because of the cake up and the rain. And then it, and nightfall happened fairly quickly. So, you know, it, it, we were pretty doing half, I think it was at night and the other half by day in terms of uh, the winching sequences that we undertook. Because in, I guess, context, normally it would be about a 20-minute flight. I measure it's about 40 miles uh, from Archerfield there. So, yeah, for it to mm. take, you know, 40, 40 minutes or an hour to get out there, that's a lot of extra sort of, you know, track miles and, and work. To, to yeah, play. yeah, yeah. Look, it's just my, best, my kind of best estimate, but I just I, – when I looked at the, the, you know, the times that we did, it was, you know, it was uh, – yeah, you, you did right. It's not that far away as it's so, you know, it's funny. You know, 20 minutes up the road, but it you know it took us a while to get ourselves um, you know out there due to the due to that weather. And I think it just got even worse that night. I mean, those those figures you just mentioned there are they're, they're just unbelievable. You know, talking about meters of rain, um, you know, and it just got worse and worse that night. And then into the next day, as Mark said, Tuesday and Wednesday were, you know, I think the weather kept quite a few of the aircraft literally on the ground because they just could not. I don't think. Um, uh, Mark, you might have been flying the next day, mate, but I believe it couldn't even get above, you know, power line height, you know, to order to, you know, kind of hover taxi and get across, you know, across the, across the terrain. Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, the, the day after it was, uh, yeah, weather was on the deck everywhere, but um, yeah. yeah, I guess. Yeah. And the phone call was run, phones were running hot, obviously, to try and get get us airborne to um, go and respond. There's a lot of people still sort of stuck and isolated. So. Yeah, there's a little bit of frustration, couldn't get out there. But then, yeah, I think uh, the following day, Brett, I think and it was um, we were all sort of out going, going for it the following day or that afternoon, I think, we, we got um, got airborne again. But, um, yeah, definitely a lot of rain. You talk about that, you know, metres of rain. It's like sort of Canadian rain, really, isn't it? Vancouver, what type of rain? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Brett, when you you guys obviously goggled up then at some stage, you were doing you know the rest of the rescues um, on goggles then for your for that first first day. Look, yeah, Mick. Unfortunately, we we were unable to do that. We went out there unaided. Oh really? Um, right. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that that week, well, the Brisbane base at that stage hadn't uh, hadn't uh, completed all of its MBG training, and that was the uh, that was the aim of that week, that very week. Of the grants and floods was to get the um, all the base pilots, crewmen, and, and air crewmen and rescue crewmen all energy qualified. So, yeah, we were out there unaided basically, and uh, um, yeah, plugging through, just uh, doing the best we can. You know, doing the best we can. 
All right, so all the hoist and that were on uh, on spotlight, <laughs> and then uh, which I mean that'd yeah, be pretty exciting yeah. anyway. But then yeah, the whole wow, the trip trip home must have been uh, yeah okay, fair enough. That'd be uh, challenging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as, uh, as we mentioned, you know, the, we had waves of weather. Unfortunately, in in the you know as we got into the later part of the the uh, the winching phase, even you know, falling into night, you know, weather started to improve a little bit to you know back to sort of lighter showers, and so that wasn't as you know concerning for us and. You know, we could see we could see the lights on the ridge line there, the uh, Warrigo Highway. So we knew that if we could see the lights of Warrigo Highway heading back to Brisbane, that there, you know, that we would be able to get over that uh, that ridge line and get into Amberley. Uh, otherwise, you know, we would have we would have thought otherwise in going going to the um, probably to that uh, property and landing there. But uh, at that stage, you know, it was starting to open up a little bit, even though it was at night and. And that's how we discussed it as a plan is, is that we'll continue, we'll just follow the Warrego Highway, we'll stay low, we'll bring the speed right back as best we can. And uh, that was pretty much a, you know, a guiding visual sense of getting ourselves back to Amberley. Otherwise, um, and we just didn't have the fuel to go on far, of course, at that stage. We were just well and truly down to the count, down to the last you know, couple of hundred kilos of fuel, and we really wanted to just get to Amberley and uh, get these people that we had on board um, you know, to some sort of medical care. So the Warrego Highway was the, you know, the, and the, on the, particularly on the ridge line there just to the uh, west of Amberley, was a bit of a guiding light for us. And, uh, you know, that's how we made our way home. All right, Nate, we might uh, jump across to you now and then we can backfill in terms mm-hmm. of the next day because I guess all the aircraft coming from the east and from Brisbane had the advantage that they were, you know, coming in and could basically scun ride uh, low level. Where coming from the west, you actually had to get over the range. So yeah, do you want to pick yeah. up uh, pick up the story? You guys were initially uh, there was callouts for you guys for this first day as well. Uh, I understand, but you couldn't actually just couldn't get there. No, well, a lot of us were scattered all over the countryside and were recalled off leave. And on that Monday, I was in Toowoomba and watching it unfurl and not realizing what was actually going on down uh, down the hill. But received a a message on Monday night saying to uh, to be at work at six o'clock in the morning to be to be briefed and then onto the mission on Tuesday. Usually a twenty minute drive out to work took me over an hour. Just amount of flooding that was occurring, and I just thought, wow, this is very serious. And this is on the western side of the range, so where all the water had gone east, it was still sort of heading west as well. And anyway, so when we got to work, you know, first thing in the morning there we. We briefed and um, had a look at the weather and there was isolated CVs and things on the area forecast and thunderstorms, the rain on most of the taps, but Amberley didn't actually have thunderstorms, but it had a lot of rain. So we actually planned IFR because looking out to the east over the Toowoomba Range, the cloud was on the deck. So there was no way visually we could actually get into the valley. So we took off and, you know, cruising along at about 6,000 feet, just looking down. And as soon as we hit the range, it was just basically eight-eighths of cloud all the way uh, to the horizon. And I thought, how on so earth are we going to get is, down? So this is two Blackhawks at this stage. Yeah, so um, we took off in stream about sort of 20 minutes apart. So uh, Tim Whitman was in 2.20. They they departed uh, about 8 o'clock. And, uh, yeah, we just gave them a bit of time so that we could uh, separate uh, with IFR. And uh, so we took off. I had Waza Wilton, who was a brand new graduate pilot with me. And I had uh, Andrew Bryson and David Hill as the crewman in the back. So essentially, I was cruising along, looking at the cloud, just thinking, how are we going to get down? You know, just trying to look for holes, 
rang up Amberley Approach and they said that the cloud was below minima for the ILS. So I thought, well, <laughs> you know, last resort, um, we'd been briefed, you know, significant loss of lice and that sort of stuff. So we thought, well, you know, we'll just bust minimas as we go through and, and that's our justification. But thankfully I heard Tim Whitten and further down to the south on the radio and they had got a visual uh, through a hole in the cloud. So they dived down and underneath it. So I got uh, approached a vectomy towards where they got visual and on the way, Thankfully, a, a hole about a black hook size appeared all the way to the ground. So <laughs> we ended a descending right-hand turn, falling leaf style, and got to the bottom of that. It was funny, too, because the clearance from the, the approach guy was basically, do what you want, you know, <laughs> and had a bit of a laugh. But um, we got to the bottom, and then, you know, one of the guys talked about Warrigal Highway. That was a life-saving thing, actually, just for navigation, because... I came out, saw the light, the, um, the, the Warrigo Highway there, started heading east, and I thought, right, where are we on this? Andrew Bison on the left-hand side said, oh, I can see uh, Gat Mackers. It's like, bang, <laughs> instant visual. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I knew where I was. Knew where I was. What a great VFR um, reference, eh? Yeah, that's right. So we, IFR now, I follow roads all the way to uh, Plainlands, uh, where we were to meet with the, uh, the QCS. When we landed there, you know, the, the weather was just really, really bad. You know, the, it was sort of just around a kilometre, probably a little bit less in parts with the, the heavy showers of rain. And when we landed at Woolworths, there was sort of nowhere to really land, so we just put it on the grass and uh, the, the aircraft just sank straight to the belly. I thought, oh, gosh, you know, there's the landing light, searchlight and antennas underneath and that. But we got out, got the briefing about what was happening and basically got stuck into it. So set up a coordination line as the railway, um, north-south with uh, Tim Whitten and myself. At that stage, they'd already rescued uh, a family and a dog before we just got there in that sort of 30 minutes behind them. Um, and it was all hell for loose from there. So we basically, uh, you know, same as the other guys, just seeing people on rooftops, prioritising, you know, who needed rescuing first and that sort of thing. Then... Once that sort of started all unfolding, uh, we then got word that um, other townships were going underwater. So we had an opportunity there to, rather than rescue off rooftops, actually air, air land and uh, start piling people in the back. Um, we had no seats in the back apart from the crewman seats. So um, uh, so we had four in the back and um, the, the centre was sort of clear so we could just keep piling people in. So what was the maximum PFE yeah. you got up to that day? Um, I think, I think I called in like a sixteen or a seventeen or something like that. But that was including people with kids on laps, and you know, so essentially, uh, you know, talking about infants and, and all that sort of stuff as well. So not just sixteen adults. Yeah, it, we tried to get a tasking out to Woodford. I remember. And I just looked at, this is where we started using the mobile phone and the, probably the invention of the EFB as we know it today. And I and I saw the uh, weather radar and it was just really, really heavy rain over sort of Wyvernhoe Dam and that. And I thought, no, nah, I can't leave the AO. Um, so basically radio back and said, no, nah, we're staying. And luckily we did because the sort of the next task we came around was sort of, um, just trying to think, uh, Forest Hill, I think was our first one. And uh, and that's where they sort of said significant loss of life. Uh, life. And uh, so we landed in the school oval. Uh, luckily, there was the cricket pitch there. We could use the hand stand so we didn't sink 
into the belly again, and then um, just where started the lightning, feeding. Lightning was landing. Was that uh, was it lightning? Yeah, the that's time? right. That's that's basically. Um, I mean, lightning was striking pretty much all day. Um, there was a couple of sea kings that arrived, but they they didn't join the party until about three o'clock because uh, of the lightning. But yeah, that was sort of the first time we actually had to shut down. Lightning was striking with about a k of us. I got a text message from Tim Whitten, who was the CEO at the time, saying lightning's pretty bad. And I said, yeah, uh, we're going to shut down. How about you? And they said, yep, we've shut down. So we're about to clumber apart. So thank God the mobile phone comms were working. It was recalled Box 5 because um, there was no way we could talk to each other with the radios. Yep. <laughs> uh, and at that stage, you know, we, we also picked up um, QPS dive teams to take with us um, because we just had the two crewmen that were doing the rescues. And essentially, uh, so we were sending down Andy Bryson as the, luckily he'd done um, the stuff with the UK uh, because in the Australian Army, they don't necessarily do the swift water rescues as, as the other guys have alluded to. And it was, you know, it was quite good to see because he was, you know, we've only got those rescue stops which are built for a soldier and we're trying to rescue infants um, and, and small children and stuff like that. So he, I could... I could see him through the chin window as we sort of dropped him off and things like that on top of rooftops. Um, actually, you know, reaching down, getting bed sheets and stuff, and ripping it up and tying it around the strop so that they could secure the infants and the babies while they brought them up. And um, yeah, we did actually get a, a dog at one stage with the the whole no pets rule. But you know, <laughs> when they're clinging on for dear life, what do you do, sort of thing? Mm. As we're flying along, though, um, uh, was as on the, he's on the left as the co-pilot and he tells me that his windshield wiper has just bit the dust i was thinking oh great so we've got you know really poor weather pelting down rain and i look over and i've actually got some video footage of it and there's this windshield wiper that's just flapping away doing absolutely nothing <laughs> so i had to stow them so we're basically just sort of moving along in really low speeds and as the guy said you know we were hover taxing around in the sense of you know being able to be 100 feet and that uh, to be able to see and avoid obstacles like that. Yeah, a lot of the cloud around, um, especially with exactly where they're talking about, um, west of Ambly there where the Warrego cuts through the mountain, here's some big wires and um, some big towers, and you're below that. You're just, you know, 50 to 100 feet, just hover transiting. So, And with that uh, windshield wiper out, it wasn't really good for uh, visibility. But It must be something about uh, helicopter windscreen wipers because, you know, again, in the Huey and then the, the Black Hawk wipers, it's always like the absolute last resort if you've got to use it. Like you're always briefed, you know. You, you've got to really be desperate to turn that thing on because they just seem to be, I don't know, you have a the super, you know, million-dollar helicopters and uh, windscreen yep. wipers just seem to be a, a nightmare always. Now, with your with your fuel, because you, you guys left, uh, so you had the external jugs on. Did both machines did, have yes. jugs? Yes, yes. Uh, we made sure we had jugs on. So you were fully, um, you so were they, fully bombed up with fuel were, out of Oki? Yeah, yeah. They were full. So, so you had what, um, four, three and a half, four hours of fuel? How much fuel? 5,000 pounds. So it gives us roughly four odd hours, four and a half hours of endurance. Yeah. Um, we did one refuel at Amberley where we bombed up to the hilt again. Um, but luckily, the um, the Blackhawk's such a trooper. We had uh, OGE hover and and be able to um, hoist or winch all those people out. So and bonus, I guess, being you know such a low elevation too. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't yeah, that's high. right. Um, exactly, and um, and the the temperature to I don't think it was that high either. So that sort of 
help down as well. But you guys were soaked at the stage because when you, when you talk about shutting down where the lightning strikes were, again, in your statement I read yep. through, you were basically, you know, I'm going to say that the crew were huddling with the, the residents all together, yeah. basically just getting soaked by this horizontal rain. Yeah, absolutely. So when we got out at Forest Hill because of the lightning, I took a photo of the aircraft and you could see the water in the background and this, you know, just the rain, yeah, as you said, pelting down sideways. We were in this little barbecue area. We were shivering and all that sort of stuff. And uh, the, the actual residents uh, that were being rescued actually crowded around us. And it was such a, you know, humanitarian moment to have these people who are in such a dire situation, have lost their house, their livelihood and all sorts of stuff. And uh, even asking them, you know, what about your pets? And they said, oh, they're in the, the hall over there, but we've left them some water and some uh, food. But, you know, they basically kissed them goodbye because they didn't think they were ever going to come back uh, to Forest Hill in, in its current state. So, yeah, they shielded us from the wind and the cold and, and said, you guys need to, you know, keep rescuing that. So they did that. So yeah, it was a, <clears throat> amazing uh, about, you know, what people can do in that sort of situation. So, yeah, one, once we saw that, that flood water that I was describing before actually starting to encroach on the aircraft, we thought we've got to take off because <laughs> otherwise the aircraft will be underwater. At, at the same time, I, I, I can't remember the call sign, but there was actually another rescue aircraft there. Uh, he actually handed me a ripped-up bushels tea box with a lat long on it uh, and a dress and, of the family that was on the roof, um, which included three young children. So... Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, I was just reading my notes there. So Firebird 460 was the uh, the call sign. And, uh, and he just he said, yeah, can you get them because our aircraft's not big enough. So that's when we basically took off again. And um, 220 uh, continued on with the, with the task at Forest Hill. We did a couple more lifts and we were basically just taking them to the, um, uh, the other side of the river where it was higher ground. The other rescues, we were taking them back to uh, the Gatton Racecourse uh, where they'd set up an emergency centre. I don't, don't think it's here, so mate, anyway, but we're talking, you know, like 200 people that you're kind of moving. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was it was somewhere uh, somewhere between 200 and 300-odd people uh, in that immediate area. So we're just basically backing and forth, taking um, at least 10 at a time. So it was quite a few lifts back and forth. And then sort of on the way out to this uh, family, um, one of the crewmen said, oh, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of people on rooftops. And, and that was around, uh, you know, the big orange area where they used to have that sky, was it ripcord, skydiving place? Yep. That, that's the first decision in my life where I had to go, right, this is life or death. Who, who lives and who dies, you know? So it was quite confronting for the first time. So I sort of said to the guys, right, well, we know they're alive. Let's get them. You know, when the other aircraft finishes off Forest Hill, then um, they can be diverted off to this other place. And, you know, after after this whole event, we actually found out that that was probably a hoax that someone had called in. <laughs> but we ended up getting about, I think it was 30, 38 or 39 people off the rooftops in that sort of case. Uh, and again, same as the other guys, it was challenging conditions, pelting down rain. The, the only hover uh, references that I had was uh, essentially um, the running water itself. Occasionally you might get in the chin window. I mean, this is from 150 feet because if we got any lower, our downwash was just destroying, you know, roofs because they were already destroyed. But we didn't want, you know, uh, corrugated iron and stuff flinging in. The people were, were actually rescuing it. And, and the smallest 
place we had to get someone was from actually a bonnet of a car in which um, uh, Hilly was actually directing us into there and he, he managed to put it in onto basically a handkerchief area, which was, you know, unbelievable. So the crew coordination, of, you know, between myself and, and the guys in the back, you know, had to be second to none sort of thing. And, um, you know, those those guys, yeah, they're cold, wet, they're out in, in the downwash as well. So it's unbelievable sort of strengths. And as the guy said before, you know, the, the adrenaline gets you through that. But, yeah, we uh, once once the sort of the, the day got through um, towards the end of light, we landed um, the last lift at a Gatton. There was a there was another one where we uh, uh, took on some uh, councilman uh, who actually had a radio, which gave us a heap more of uh, SA about what was going on. He directed us after um, uh, Forest Hill. Uh, he directed us off to um, to other sort of areas, and including um, we had to do Laidley and things like that. And again, you know, there was hundreds of people. So you're still refueling out of out of uh, Ambly at the stage. Well, we actually only did one refuel out of Ambly um, because we ended up flying about I think it was a nine nine point four or something all day, and that was yeah. So the the two uh, full jugs and internals gave us uh, basically ten hours endurance. And how much was um, that? So we only needed that one. How much of that was on goggles? So it was about. 7:30 at night. So we've been going, we've been going 12 hours, not not flying, because um, uh, we we'd stopped during the day. I think it was all up maybe two or three stops due to the uh, the lightning. But yeah, we gobbled up um, roughly around that seven o'clock mark, and then kept going for another hour and a half after that. And lucky we did because uh, you know we we rescued a few more people, um, including uh, we noticed some flashing lights at the big orange uh, was we were going to be heading home and uh so i sort of called up and said yeah we're gonna we're gonna go in there and just see if they need anything and luckily we could actually there was enough of an island of um, the big orange and if you ever drive past there there's a turning lane and then there's a whole bunch of light so you're pretty much right on 10 feet uh to get in there and uh and as we landed the other aircraft um we're finishing off some rescues and was sort of keeping mutual SAR for us. And a bunch of old people came out and we took them on board. And I thought, okay, this is the last one. We're going home. The other aircraft was going back to Amberley. And uh, unfortunately, I can't remember, I think it was uh, Andy Bryson that sort of said, oh, I've got some bad news for you. And I said, oh, what's that? And they said, oh, there's an old lady who's, you know, a couple of doors down from the Big Orange and uh, she's still at home. Uh, so we took off and... I said, uh, you know, our, our fuel at that point, again, like the other guys, we were getting quite low. So we pretty much only had maybe 15, 20 minutes on station before we had to uh, go home because we we're going to reach our bingo fuel for Amberley. And that's basically direct. And we couldn't fly direct because the cloud was on the deck in uh, in the high ground. So we had to take the low route around. And that's that's sort of where this little famous story comes out in the book um, about Andy Bryson who's uh, ex-Brit. So he sort of looks at his goals and said, well, I won't need those, places them on the seat. And uh, we find the house that the old man um, directed us and I basically briefed him and I said, look, uh, we don't have the fuel to stick around any more than sort of 10, 15 minutes. And uh, if, if she won't go, then, you know, come back up the wire and uh, and we'll leave because we can't 
we can't faff around sort of thing. Anyway, um, so we're looking for a place to where to drop him. And of course, the water is is right at the bottom of, of her house in, in the sense of it's right under the floorboard. So it's looked like it's about to go. The only place we could drop her it was a, a small set of stairs at the big, at the front of the house. Uh, so I thought, well, that's where we'll, we'll drop him. But unfortunately, uh, there's live wires going straight to the front door, which is right over that sort of little landing area. And we knew the power was on because the lights were on inside. And so it's like, oh, God, where do we go now? So luckily the guys in the back managed to scan the area. They found this little mound of rubbish, which was uh, roughly, I don't know, 20 metres off the front of the house. So we uh, we hoisted Andy in onto that, and then he um, basically waded himself still on the hoist and then disconnected himself uh, as he got to the bottom of the stairs there. Little did I know... The next day, I found out he couldn't actually swim. So <laughs> it was uh, quite a uh, heroic feat from him to be wading through sort of that chest height water um, to get to. Uh, once he got inside, um, we sort of, it was about 10 minutes and we hadn't seen anything happening on the inside. Anyway, I'm getting quite desperate because, you know, I'm looking at the fuel. And I'm asking was it to calculate, you know, what is the absolute minimum fuel out of here and that sort of stuff. And so you're you flashing lights on and off, coming down, hovering, like yeah, 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 that's it. I mean, we're on goggles, but we had uh, we we'd set everything from IR um, to visible, and I'm flashing the searchlight back and forward and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I don't know what it looks like from the inside, but probably nothing. And then uh, you know, he tells his story when we got back, and uh, essentially he was in there and. Um, talking to the old woman and the old woman's just pottering around. He said, you know, we've got to go now. And she said, no, 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 um, my uh, daughter's going to come and pick me up. And he said, well, unless she's got a boat, <laughs> there's no way because it's it's all flooded out there. And she's like, oh, well, how are we leaving? And he said, well, by helicopter. And she said, oh, I can't afford that. You know, she's trying to gather up some money. And meanwhile, Andy's sort of going, what on earth is going on here? And, you know, she's she's trying to make a cup of tea for him and trying to pay him. And meanwhile, we're in the aircraft going, come on in. Like, I thought he'd fallen through, you know, because the, uh, the house was, you know, sitting on water. And, and so I thought I'd lost him. You know, you could probably hear tears in my voice going, oh, Andy, what's going on? And anyway... Finally, after all this time, I see the door open and there's Andy and the old woman. And how Andy described it was pretty funny. Um, I know it's a dire situation and all that, but the woman finally came to the realisation of what the scale of what this was. And she looked up at the helicopter, looked at Andy with the strop, and she's like, I'm not going sort of thing. So he ended up putting the strop over her and just dragging her out. And then the next challenge was like, right, how do we get them off without hitting the live wire? So I said to um, I said, okay, let's just drag them off and swing them out, and then I and we'll just hoist them up away. And as it were, uh, we swung them out. They swung back in and hit the house, unfortunately. And then uh, and they got back up into the aircraft. So from there, um, that was it. Fuel was uh, was a factor, and uh, we ended up getting back into having to air transit back in. I basically threw through Ambly's airspace without a, a clearance because we basically told them that we didn't have comms with them through that gap. So they were happy for us to just track through there and and uh, and then call them when we could. So we did. 
Um, and on the way back, you know, over the 140 decibels of a black hawk and double hearing protection, I could still hear sobbing and crying from the people in the back. One of the um, the crewmen, I think it was uh, Dave Hill, he said, uh, yeah, we, we've got some medical issues back here. Can we get a couple of ambulances? So um, uh, I organised for two ambulances to come out to Amberley and we basically landed straight on the taxiway, shut down, and um, the ambulances met us there. And as the other guys say, you know, we just collapsed. It was just the adrenaline has just worn off now. And then um, ironically, as I hopped out of the aircraft, my bloody rescue knife fell out and just cut my seat belt <laughs> clear clear through. And I thought, yeah, that is definitely the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nuts. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, you've kept a very little tone through that, but uh, that would have been, yeah, very, very, uh, very, very stressful. Um, it's incredible. So. That's amazing. So I don't know. Yeah, Brad and Mark, you guys got any questions for, for Nathan from that side? Because I, I, you read through all the coverage, and there's quite a lot about uh, the, you know the first, especially Mark, your machine getting to, to Grantham. There's a lot of media coverage about that, and then Brett, there's a little bit about the you know about five ten. But in all the news reports, everything I went and looked through, I couldn't find anything about the, the army or the or the Sea King sort of stories. Yeah, I think um, mm. just because we had the, the GoPro footage as well, I think that's what sort of there's a lot of focus on just the, the 139s and the hoisting. But, yeah, even just listening to Nate's story then, it's just pretty amazing what was actually going on behind the scenes as well. So, it's, um, yeah, there's a couple of good books out that I'm sort of reading at the moment, which sort of, you know, even tales of, you know, farmer survival that people that the machines couldn't get to. So, it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's amazing stuff done by all, I think. Mm. It really comes down to the, you know, like Nate and, and Mark's stories and many others, I'm sure. I think the weather plays another factor in this. That on those few days, uh, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that that you know, inland tsunami that the police minister described, what happened in Toowoomba, effectively made its way over, you know, the Lockyer Valley and that, and those regions, and that pretty much denied, you know, a lot more of that the the, the coverage that you know, would have been unbelievable to see um, the military at work. I think, you know, in the later days of that week, we only just started to see the ADF, you know, as, as the as the floods started to subside, the weather started to move out and, uh, you know, the real level of devastation was exposed. But I think that weather bomb event um, you know, curtailed, you know, some of the, uh, the vision that would have captured, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, the descriptions of what they did are just amazing, you know, just amazing. And without the ADF... It, you know, being called in there, gosh, who, who would have known what, what would have happened, you know? So there's one story of the Sea well, one Kings thing is, I'll, I'll share, and you, you guys might know more of the details too, but uh, so obviously two Navy Sea Kings were there. And I, again, I don't, you guys will tell me what day they actually got there, but they saw someone being swept down a creek and basically broke off and, and were following him, chasing him down the creek. And uh, yeah. he, he went underneath the bridge and they thought, oh, that's it, he's, he's trapped and done. But he actually came up underneath the bridge, kept going and then caught a tree and managed to, to hold onto a tree, and then they were able to actually yeah, winch him yeah. up out, off the tree. So I don't know if you guys know anymore. Yeah, I was about to that. mention that. So that was um, that was Shark 2-1, and uh, that was uh, – so they, they joined us about 3 in the afternoon on that Tuesday. One of the first things they did was they did see that survivor, and they picked him off a tree in the Raging River. But during that process, as you said, the, um, they, he's dislodged off the tree. Uh, luckily, he had a uh, life jacket on. I think he was actually canoeing or something. I, I I don't know, but then he got swept under a bridge and then just popped out the other side, and in which they um they got him from the water. So 
Yeah, so some other bits and pieces. So I was at Redcliffe Airfield, just on the north side of Brizzy there, and it was probably the 11th uh, because, again, on, on the 10th, Brisbane didn't really know too much that happened. As, as you said, it happened right in the afternoon when you guys were first out there, Mark. So it was on the evening news and then the next day, you know, sort of get bits and pieces through. But I remember being out there at the airfield and we obviously weren't <laughs> we weren't flying and you could basically like put a bucket outside and then pull it back in and the bucket would be almost full again. Like it was just, it was solid rain. And at some stage during the day, it must have been a 412 or something fly over. Uh, and again, it would have been, you know, 150 feet. And I just remember this thinking, you know, how's a thing even flying with that much, you know, rain falling on it? So for you guys out there, it must have been, you know, a similar deal again. But then I've got a video from the 13th, which is two days after, where it's, it's blue skies and sunshine again. And at Redcliffe, there's must have been mm. about six or seven squirrels basically, you know, basing out of there to do the, the rescue ops in, in Brisbane because obviously all this water's then moved down down the river and downstream and gone through the middle of the Brisbane CBD and caused a heap of devastation mm. there as well. But it's just amazing that, mm. you know, two or three days after, it could have been then blue skies. And I think on the 14th, yeah. I've got here that by the 14th, there was a Chinook, nine Blackhawks, four Kiowas, three Sea Kings, four Navy Augusta 109s, obviously all the emergency Queensland uh, machines. Uh, so, yeah, that, that couple of days later uh, was basically when everything ramped up. But it, the first day and then the second day, it was kind of, you know, just a handful of you guys out there. Yeah, it was like a, a cruel fate, actually, as you just mentioned, that the uh, the weather cleaned up after even the next day it was starting to clean up and then the day after it was blue skies and you could see the full devastation of it. And then when everybody arrived, uh, you know, it was the big cleanup work uh, that was required now. So, um, yeah, you sort of had to put the past in the past and, and start a new phase of, of, of this flood. There's a bit, there's a, I guess from, from an organisational point of view, the, like again, back in Brisbane, I don't think a lot of people knew what was going on out there. Because again, the statement from the guys on the Sunshine Coast, they were still getting hospital patient transfers, and they were saying, "Hey, look, I think we, you know we've got uh, again a BK here, and we've got a, a two hundred six with a hoist. We, we should be out there." And their controlling agency wouldn't let them go out to where you guys were, and was basically giving them hospital transfers. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah, it, was, just, yeah, it, it happened yeah. so quickly. You know, you, you go ahead. Brett. No, it's, I was just going to say that you, you're right. I think the, the uh, how to describe it to you, I mean, the event on, on its own scale was was enormous and nobody really had any real idea as to, you know, the scale of, of devastation and two, the, uh, you know, the potential uh, injuries and or loss of life that had occurred or was about to occur. And, and uh, yeah, I don't think that they, the coordination... Uh, certainly from the rescue helicopter service side of things through Queensland Health and clinical coordination where we get most of our tasking uh, medically wise had any idea of you know what was going on it wasn't it wasn't until you know the likes of rescue 500 started to uh, you know be able to relay the message back to say this is what's going on we need you know we need people here um, we need more more effort here uh, we, we don't need to move people between hospitals we need to move people off out of trees and and it was just that rapid acceleration of that whole you know, disaster event that, that caught, you know, I guess the, the coordinators, the tasking agencies by surprise. So, I mean, they had no idea. Um, um, yeah, what do you think, Mark? Yeah, I, I think I do recall the guys actually, when they were starting the hoisting, they actually got tasked for a medical task, asked if they were available, which is bizarre, but that, that sort of highlights it, yeah. 
the coordination centre didn't know what was going on because I think the initial calls for us up into Grant was from QPS and not the actual QCC. So, uh, yeah, it's just uh, one of those things where, as such, like I was saying earlier, it's just one of those events that just happened so quickly in the scale that was just uh, just unbelievable. So, got a lot of lessons learned, I think, and the whole thing now after the inquiries is all based around the single point tasking now so yeah it's been a lot of good lessons learned that we can all agree that come out of this as well all right i might tease some of those out of you mm. guys quickly so i just got another quote here from this is from the one of the load masters in in black hawk uh, 220 which was the other black hawk out there so this is one so tony young and he says uh i've been flying for, and this is back in obviously 2011 I've been flying for 12 years, and that's the worst I've seen it. Terrible visibility for the pilots. It's incredibly hard to navigate. So, again, just a, another sort of idea of, of the weather on the day there. So I was going to say, before I jump in and, and, I guess, pull some lessons out or what you guys would, you know, urge other air crew to take away from it, Mark and, and Brett, on that second day, uh, what was the tasking for you guys? Were you flying then? Um, I think uh, the second day, wasn't it? From... Oh, sorry, uh, I think it was yeah. a lot of it was just sort of patient, patient and recovering people and just moving people from townships. I think the, the guys were out Forest Hill uh, as well, just doing some reconnaissance and uh, evacuation type work. Uh, and then I think that was flying around QPS with water uh, management as well, just so they could have a really good look what was going on. Uh, anything else, Brad, you want to add there? Mm. Oh, yeah, the second and third day for myself, Mick, I was uh, back at Archerfield Base, and on that second day that I came back to work, the the you know the flood event that uh, moved down from from uh, Lockyer down the Brisbane River, pretty much engulfed all of that region along the you know the river there, Archerfield, Rockley, and so that's all very low lying area. So by the middle of Tuesday afternoon, we were preparing to be isolated at Archerfield Airport. So we were rapidly, you know, uh, trying to get uh, as many stores, as many, you know, you know, stuff that we needed because for the next three or four days, we wouldn't, probably three days, I think we actually couldn't leave Archerfield because the entire area around that, um, around the airport itself was uh, was flooded as the floodwaters came up. So we pretty much, you know, prepared to be able to, you know, sleep people, crews, uh, you know, paramedics, doctors, um, by that stage, we called in extra staff and we were basically setting up, you know, the base itself as, you know, for additional accommodation. accommodation. We had generators, uh, you know, extra fuel, water, food. So we, we had no idea how long we would be, you know, in that in that um, isolated state for. So that's how the sort of scene was set for us Tuesday, Wednesday, and effectively backing up the uh, the crews that were flying. We continued to do a normal day and night roster for those crews, for those two aircraft. And uh, and made sure we had people resting because we knew that we'd, you know, we'd just certainly carry on um, for as long as what was required. So yeah, that was the kind of scene that was for us in the the rest of the week, and we uh, we pretty much started to uh, you know set the sort of the uh, equipment and stuff up the base there and, and start to um, uh, support the tasking agencies in, in Brisbane at Kedron there for uh, counter disaster. So we're, we're that's that's kind of how things unfolded for us there. Okay, well, I might shoot around the table then, uh, and we'll go. So, Mark, Brett, and then uh, Nathan. So, if you guys would just want to pick out, you know, a couple of lessons learnt from yourself that you'd, you know, pass on to other uh, aircrew. Yeah, just as far as the Swiftwater and operating as a down the wire in the Swiftwater environment, I think um, 
yeah, it's pretty much at the the top of the the hazards as far as down there why water rescue is concerned. And I think yeah, just the you know even if you do a swift water rescue course or technician course, getting winched out of the helicopter into moving water is a whole different beast than playing on the the, the river with the fire. Is. So I think um, yeah, just for any crews that are involved in any sort of swift water rescue from now on, just you really need to show good judgment and yeah, ease my side of the caution. It wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't easy, that's for sure. But, um, yeah, I think most of the crews who performed down the wire rolling around this country, the, the skills are really high level and the, the level of fitness is um, really up there. So, but, yeah, it's it's one of those operations where I think it's, um, yeah, you can't really train for it and you really rely on your, your experience to get you through and following the SOPs, of course. Excellent. All right, Brent, we'll throw, yeah. throw it to you. Yeah. Oh, look. Uh, yeah, look. I think that's um, you know that kind of really summarises. Mark just hit a really good point there. Is that how do you prepare and train for something like like that event? You, know, you just simply you just simply can't. You just have to put together you know the skills and the uh, and the experiences that you've had um, and uh, and perform those uh, to the best of your ability to the safety of your crew. You know, obviously to the ability of the uh, the platform as well. So. I think that event really changed the the course of uh, you know uh, yeah how helicopters respond in in so many ways both you know civil and defence I'm sure you know and that will will attest to some changes there but you know really it's um, it's about you know making sure that everything we're trying to do is applied no matter how bad the situation is no matter how desperate the situation is is that that uh, uh, you know you do your bit uh, and you do it to the best of your ability and. Uh, I certainly saw that, and I just think that uh, we uh, we we did what we could on the day and the days following, and just the stories themselves as they unfold, uh, just just amazing, just amazing. You know, the quality of uh, you know digging in and um, and doing as much as you can on the day with what resources you have, fantastic. So uh, yeah, that's my thought anyway. Yeah, and from the from the military's point of view, we had uh, sort of very similar challenges. Thankfully, um, some of them have been addressed with regards to things like the introduction of EFB into the aircraft, which means we now have moving map displays, including map addresses and things like that. So that would have been a hell of a lot easier for navigation. Other things like uh, they're still trying to implement, uh, like uh, wireless comms. We, we do have wireless comms in the military, but uh, we've only just recently been doing some trials last year that would be even more advantageous to have that. So you've got a wireman down and you can still talk to them to have that SA. So I think one of the guys mentioned that, you know, once you're in the trees there, then there's sort of no comms um, apart from hand signal. So it's kind of uh, the will and a wing and a prayer. The tasking, uh, I, you know, having that decentralised tasking was, um, you know, no fault of anyone's, but uh, essentially it was do what you can you know, when you can, and as as the guy said, do your part, um, because realistically, uh, you know, you, you can't know everything that's going on, especially if you have, you know, tasking agencies who are on the ground who have zero comms to the airborne assets. If there was some sort of, you know, more centralised system where, you know, you could all plug in, you know, that would be uh, the ideal situation, like uh, like we have with them, you know, um, with the military battle space, but that wasn't a battle space. That was that was Mother Nature at its worst. So the, I, I don't know how we could really improve on that. Really, realistically, between all the assets. Um, 
No, look, it's it's uh, it just sounds like a huge task. The fact when you arrive somewhere and you, and you just got to, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time, and, and then as you said, you know, have to you know yeah. choose choose which people you're going to pull off and in, in, in what order from roofs and things like that. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's just Calavella notes here. I'll, I'll throw in. So Mark uh, Kempton. So he was on the obviously the pilot in Rescue 500 with, with yourself, Mark. Uh, his house flooded. Yeah, his house flooded the next day in Brisbane. And then Nathan, I'm not sure there was an army uh, ground support person in Ambly. Uh, yes. Yeah, their their house at Oakley. Yeah, we watched. He watched his. He watched his house go under as we departed. Oh really? Okay. Because uh, yeah, yeah, obviously you know, yeah. people involved in the rescue are also then being affected by the by the floods. Uh, so a couple of things. Yeah. At the end of well, actually, then February, so just almost under a month later, we had a cyclone hit northern um, northern Queensland. So it was a cyclone Yazi, it was a Cat 5, it'd been through Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, PNG, and then in North Queensland, there's 30,000 people evacuated. There's a record low pressure of 929 uh, hectopascals. So it's huge devastation. I think it's like the most expensive in terms of damage cyclones ever hit Australia. But there's only one life lost up there. Uh, so to then lose 35 in this event um, in, in Brisbane, uh, you know, it's a... You know, we're talking first world country here. Um, it, it was a rural mm. area, but it's only, again only you know thirty minutes, forty minute drive from the city. Just I think, mm. in comparison to you know amount of, of lives lost, just gives a bit more context to to how you know severe and, and immediate uh, the problem was. And the other thing that I, mm. basically in the back of my mind, there's that U two song uh, where I think it was the, the flooding in, in Florida. Where the, all the, the military assets are arriving in, in the uh, the music video for the for the song, um, and mm. sort of you know think of that with all these assets and people just arriving from everywhere to to do the rescue. So, mm. so guys, yeah, look, you know, <laughs> some pretty heroic things out there, like you know, some really tough calls and and heaps of skillful flying. So I'm sure you know on behalf of not only the people out there but everyone who's listening to these stories, uh, you know, uh, a big thank you for. For sharing it, and uh, you know, just acknowledgement of, of what you guys all went through out there. Thanks, Mick. Good on you, Troubles, Mick. Much appreciated. Great to, great to be on board. Love your show, big fan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks, guys. There's a three of us have been able to to support all the rest of the crews that were there on their behalf. We've, we've probably been able to tell their stories on their behalf. So that's a bit of a, uh, quite a privilege. Yeah, and that was yeah, a, a big idea of doing too. Is obviously, you know, heaps more stories and, and people didn't mention by name that uh, did things. But if we can, you know, share, shine a little bit of light on it and share a little bit of what happened there on the day, that uh, yeah, and just sort of recognise the, the people who, who did all that work and and uh, and yeah, mm. a huge effort. So yeah, folks, well done, and uh, yeah, thanks for, for hanging time. out in the call, and we'll catch up with you guys soon. Thanks, Mick. Privilege being here. Thanks, thanks a lot, Mick. Take care. There are photos of Mark, Brett, and Nathan up on the blog post that goes along with this episode, including there's a couple of shots there of Mark on the wire on the day actually going down and bringing up survivors, showing that the floodwaters in the background and in the roofs of the houses. We've also dumped a whole heap of videos on the blog post. So it's at present count, there's seven of them. And it's a range between you know, news coverage, um, shots on the ground, shots of the aircraft. There's even a, a short video there that Nathan has taken from the front of the Blackhawk while they're flying. Looking out the front is showing the actual conditions uh, that they were they were flying in. 
There's also another video there with an interview with Mark Kempton, who was the pilot of Rescue 500. So that was the machine that was first on the scene that Mark Turner was in the back of. And he talks about that you know, process of turning up at the town and just seeing the devastation for the first time and again going through that idea of you know, who are they going to try and help first. And I know a lot of you will be listening while you're in the car or out walking or riding on your phone. But if you can get on the website for this one, I, th I think the visuals there really add to the, the stories that you've just heard. Brett and Nathan are still in flying roles for different organizations today. Mark Turner is out on his own. He's doing consulting work now for SAR organizations, focusing on the hoisting especially. He's currently a board member for and providing expert opinion for the Group Technical Evacuation Advanced Aeromedical, or TEAM for short, in British Columbia. And if you want to have a look at their work and see their website, it's at team, T-E-A-A-M dot C-A. And you can have a look at, uh, you know, again, some of the things that Mark was learning and he's passing back into the industry uh, that way. Hope you enjoyed that. There were some really great stories in there. And I'm really good mates with Nathan. And it's only been this last week or so researching and pulling all this together that I've really understood what it is that they actually did out there. So I'm super stoked that we've been able to record uh, that and, and share those stories and shine a little bit of a light on what those crews uh, did out there. Now, sticking with that idea of, of shining a light on the industry and, the, and especially the people that work in it, World Helicopter Day is coming up again this year and I'm getting early and trying to get it organised. So it'll be on the 19th of August this year, which is the third Sunday in August. And again, on the website, worldhelicopterday.com, you can grab all the details there. And if you've got access to a, a hangar and aircraft, then you know, I really encourage you to have a an open day on that date. Uh, and again, if you don't have that, but if you know someone else who owns a company or a you know again a SAR organisation who wants to have that local publicity and have uh, people from the public come in and see the facilities and get up close to aircraft, talk to pilots, crewmen, maintainers, find out about the industry, then this is just a, a really good chance to sort of do this on a, a worldwide scale and uh, have a bit of a network effect there. So last year we had 16 events worldwide on the day, uh, including on the on the very harbour front, right at the front of uh, Hong Kong, uh, which is pretty amazing. So again, this year we have to lots more events, we'll keep it building, and again, it's free PR. You can have your event listed on the uh, the main website, worldhelicopterday.com. There's resources there like press releases and uh, organisation charts and graphics and things that you can use. If you want to see the reach of the event, if you go to Instagram or Twitter, uh, put in hashtag worldhelicopterday, then you'll see the sort of photos from previous years and the reach that the event gets. So yeah, I just really highly encourage you to get on board and, and take part in that event. In terms of this show online, you can grab it, find it at rotarywingshow.com or facebook.com forward slash rotarywingshow. You can grab me on email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. If this is your first introduction to the show, then you know check out the back issues. And again, it's obviously on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, and the different podcast apps. And that's probably the easiest way to subscribe and make sure you just get uh, easy access to the future shows as they come out. Eagle Fall in USA. So someone's, Eagle Fall, thank you, left an iTunes review. And he says, I'm not a helicopter pilot, but I've been a loadmaster on a helicopter crew. I love to use this podcast to stay up to date on the industry. I highly suggest this podcast for anyone working around a helipad. So thank you very much. And again, if you want to leave reviews, you can jump on iTunes and do that. It's a great way of letting people know kind of what the, the show's about if they're coming to it cold. Again, a big thank you 
And a shout out to the small team that contributes to helping with the, the show's bandwidth costs. So Heath Armstrong especially, Peter, Tony, Kevin, Jason for your support. Thank you for chipping in towards the, the background sort of costs that go towards the show. And John Pearson also has a new supporter this month. If you want to help me out there and occasionally get advanced news and snippets of upcoming episodes, then you can look for the show on patreon.com or at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. On a personal note, and if I'm being totally honest, a little bit of a brag, last week I got to fly a 1963 B model, Bell UH-1. So this is the, basically the Huey, uh, the old version, so the shorter uh, cabin. And you know, again, that's something I just never thought I'd, I'd be able to do. Uh, so it's amazing to be able to put that in the logbook. And uh, yeah, something I'm you know, very, very excited about that I uh, had a chance to do. That's it for tonight. Hoping you all keep safe, and I'll talk to you soon.